Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Happy Halloween. Today you can see me sitting here in my pumpkin kesa, the right color for the day, the night, the eve that we call Halloween. And somehow the pumpkin made it into what we are going to hear today. Pumpkins feature centrally in stories. And one of these stories is also the story of a wonderful thing turning into a pumpkin at the stroke of the clock at midnight. You might wonder, where is he going with this? This is the So and Shaku commemoration day. And yes, exactly, that is where this talk is going. Stories are told, and this is the story of So and Shaku, or in the Japanese would say Shaku So and. We all know about the parts of his life that are so important to Zen, Rinzai Zen in particular, arriving in America. We all know that he came in 1893 as the leader of a Japanese delegation to an event that happened during the World Fair in Chicago in 1893 the Congress of the World's Religions, and he was there. So were Indian gurus, so were all religions that were represented majorly here in this endeavor. It was a wonderful meeting. And we know that after it, this year triggered eventually one of his students appearing in America, Nyogen Senzaki, and continuing Nyogen Senzaki with Soen Roshi's friendship started via correspondence. All of this that we see here as the Zen Studies Society and much of the Rinzai practice here in the United States unfolded. A wonderful story to be beheld, but also to be looked at from the pumpkin point of view. I owe a lot of this information to a wonderful scholar who teaches at the University of Hawaii, whose name is Michelle Moore. Michelle Moore, I have had the pleasure to be in contact with when he translated the first authorized uh, book of teachings by my ordination teacher, uh, Joshu Roshi. Michel Moore translated it. And uh, he is one of the first scholars who looked into the background. And because there are so many Japanese materials 
about Chuck Soren because he's such an important character and personality also in the Japanese history of uh, Rinzai Zen. Many of those were opened up through his research to us who primarily read the English language. So when did Chuck Soren live? Let me just remind ourselves here of why it is that he is so important. So he lived from 1860 until 1919. During his lifetime, he was known as Chuck Soen. Chuck is the first character of the name of Shakasama, of the historical Buddha. So it is kind of a title like Reverend, Buddhist Reverend Soen. His room, his chamber name was Ryoga Kutsu. You can hear it when we chant our dedication, Ryoga Kutsu Soen Zenji. And Ryoga Kutsu means, Kutsu is den, den or lair. And the Ryoga is the Lankavatara Sutra. So he was the abbot of Engakuji. Engakuji, a wonderful temple in Kamakura. And today's, uh, today's uh, abbot of this temple is a person uh, by the name of Yokotananre Roshi, and he, we met him, uh, Shingiroshi and I, we sat across from him during the 250-year celebration of Hakuin Zenji uh, at Ryotakuji in 2017. He also is, you can listen to his talks online uh, on YouTube, wonderful. So Engakuji, a very important temple. When Shaksoen came to America, he brought with him another disciple that's very famous, uh, Suzuki Teitaro, or Diti Suzuki as we know him. He translated for him. And just to give you a little bit of the history, what came before and after him. Uh, so in Shaku's teacher was Imakita Kosen, was his name, who lived from 1816 until 1892. And his Dharma heirs also, it's not only that Nyogen Senzaki came to the United States as a student of Soen Shaku, but also one of his Dharma heirs by the name of Sokatsu Tetsuo came back to the United States with 14 monks in, I think it was 1906. And they came to California trying to establish a Zen Buddhist community near Hayward in California. They tried everything to sustain the community such as growing strawberries didn't work out too well. The strawberries didn't grow as well as they should. And most of the monks who came with Sokatsu Tetsu went back to Japan. One stayed behind by the name of Sasaki Shigetsu, who we know as Sokeyan. Sokeyan 
Shigetsu Sasaki, the founder of what is now known as the first Zen Institute of America in New York City. When he founded it in 1930, it was called the Buddhist Society of America. Also in that party that came with Sokatsu Tetsuo was a young Roshi by the name of Goto Zuigan. Goto Zuigan Roshi is known to us through his disciple Morinaga Soko, who wrote the wonderful book, Novice to Master. We also have his uh, lay successor, Ursula Jarand Roshi, who is in California, uh, Daishu in West, and who teaches there. So, B.T. Suzuki, of course, you know all how important he was to the development of Zen in the United States and in the Western world. Very, very important contributions. So, but what about the pumpkin? What is the pumpkin behind it? We know human beings have the tendency to remember the good parts of the stories and to tell them over and over so that the not so nice parts of the stories don't interfere too much with the recollection. Here was Shakusoen, uh, Kogatsusoen. He lived in the time where the Japanese nationalist movement just after the restoration of the Meiji era was very strong. And in the war between Japan and Russia, the Tsarist Russia at the time, Japan invaded the mainland. And we all probably remember that Invasions are cruel and that there is no gain on either side of any war. It is just horrific, but full of enthusiasm. This young Roshi here went to Russia with the troops with his understanding that this would be a way to basically help convert or bring the evil non-Buddhist devils to understand the power of the Dharma and to help Buddhism resolve that situation. Of course, that is a very romanticized idea of war. And what really happened is when Kogatsu uh, came over there, he was faced with the realities of destruction, of human suffering. His expectation of preaching the Dharma to the non-Buddhists never came true. Instead, he found himself chanting sutras in front of dismembered Japanese soldiers. 
hospitals full of injured, of all sorts of terrible mutilations. Besides that, there was no water. And in his diary, he writes about how difficult it was to be without water, to follow. And at times he would find himself just there, unable to even intone a single sutra in front of the carnage lying ahead of him. So his writings that we can find in Japanese that are really pro-Japan and spreading Buddhism with the expansion of the Japanese empire met reality. And they met reality for him so strongly that he had to return to Japan. He got sick himself. Abdominal pain. And intense spiritual and emotional suffering. And all of this happened before he came to America. He returned in 1904. He was able through his stature as being related to Engakuji to come back with a Japanese prince who also had to be returning to the mainland. And he spent several months rehabilitating himself from what he had experienced. Maybe we could call it nowadays PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome or something similar that he experienced. And it was so strong that it was seen as a good idea to send them outside of the country, namely to go back to America. So when he arrived back in America in 1906, it was a healing trip for him. You might ask, well, why? Are you telling me this? It is so much nicer to believe in the shiny story of it. But it's important to know because we all have to know and understand our stories as, as they are. And we have to investigate how they are and what they contain, not just following hagiographic accounts, making people into saints, making causes into noble causes, lost or not, very important. Another aspect that I would like to point out here is 
uh, the relationship with DT Suzuki, namely how DT Suzuki also had an immense influence on us, how we read about Zen. In that 1893, 1893 uh, address to this Congress of the World's Religions. This is the translation that Michael Moore, Michel Moore, uh, created from the original. And I will read it to you. It's just the first paragraph out of how he uh, started his speech to this wonderful body. It's also be said, it's quite interesting. Here comes this Japanese monk speaking in Japanese and then followed by another Japanese translating it into English. It was in quite in stark contrast, for example, for, uh, with the Indian teachers who came, who spoke perfectly English and dazzled the audiences listening with their Indian philosophy. But here is the translation. Ladies and gentlemen, all the various things succeed to each other in the unlimited dimension of time and are aligned in the endless dimension of space. But are, what are they made of? As far as I can tell, they emerge as the result of two mental causes. And these two mental causes are our nature and our emotions. Now here is the paragraph that Diti Suzuki translated and read. If we open our eyes and look at the universe, we observe the sun and moon and the stars on the sky, mountains, rivers, plants, animal, fishes and birds on the earth. Cold and warmth come alternately. Shine and rain change from time to time without ever reaching an end. Again, let us close our eyes and calmly reflect upon ourselves. From morning to evening, we are agitated by the feelings of pleasure and pain, love and hate, sometimes full of ambition and desire, sometimes called to the utmost excitement of reason and will. Thus, the action of mind is like an endless issue of a spring of water. As the phenomena of the external world are various and marvelous, so is the internal attitude of human mind. Shall we ask for the explanation of these marvelous phenomena? Why is the universe in a constant flux? Why do things change? Why is the mind subjected to constant agitation? For these, Buddhism offers only one explanation, namely the law of cause and effect. So just to remind ourselves, this is what, what Shaku saw and so and Shaku said, ladies and gentlemen, all the various things succeed to each other in the unlimited dimension of time and are aligned in the endless dimension of space. But what are they made of? As far as I can tell, they emerge as the result of two mental causes. And these two mental causes are our nature and our emotions. Wow. 
What a difference. Apparently, it was quite necessary for DT Suzuki to elaborate on every little thing that was in this very dense first paragraph of Shaksoen. Already, we can see in one simple act of translation, a completely different story emerges. I'm not criticizing Diti Suzuki. I'm pointing out our human nature as to what we do by interpreting. This was not a translation, it was an interpretation. And the Yoga Kutsu, the Lankavatara Sutra, everything is mind. Everything is mind. Realities are created through our minds. And everything is an interpretation from the lens, the heart of our being aware and awake, hopefully. It is important to recognize this, not just from the point of view of speaking about the history of how Rinzai Zen came to the United States, but also from the point of view how we human beings interpret stories, history. I want to encourage you, if you have access, please find the just released documentary that's called Civil War. It is a documentary that speaks about the history of the Civil War and how stories were told in the different parts of the United States not different. We are just going to investigate these interpretations so that we have the full picture and look at the parts from all different sides. This is a very good way of seeing how other people have their interpretations of the story. And for us as Zen practitioners, it is especially important that we don't just examine the stories of who we think we are as an individual, that we examine the stories of who we think we are as a tradition, thus pointing to Shaku Soen, Soen Shaku, and also thus pointing to us as an American society. These are investigations that engage us with what it means to not only being an, in, an individual, not only being a practitioner in a specific tradition, but also being a member of a society, a society that has its own stories and that we live up to the calling to tell these stories to the best of our knowledge, to not assume what we are being told is how it is, 
but to investigate, to investigate and find out no matter how horrific it may be. If there are things in this basement of this society, shall we leave them there and let them fester until the foundation begins to crumble? Or shall we go into these dark recesses of not only our own personal minds, our minds as a tradition, but also our minds as members of this society. That's why we come together here, so we can help each other shine the light on this journey of entering this dark realm, which once was called reality. It seems like a chore or something really difficult to do. But the richness of being able to fully recognize our shortcomings as a species, our shortcomings as individuals, and to follow that vow that we see manifest in people like Soen Shaku his predecessors and his successors to look at that what was and is without avoidance, with an open heart and the willingness to do better. So this is not to judge anyone to judge history, but to remind us all as Zen practitioners, as human beings, we are called to act differently at this time, to look at what we believe, to look at what ideas and ideals we subscribe to with this open mind that includes the view from the point of view of the pumpkin. The clock has struck 12 times for midnight. We have to wake up to our true pumpkin nature. And if we do that, there's absolutely nothing scary about it. It's only scary as long as we don't acknowledge it. So it's not trick or treat today. It is trick and treat. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.